welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. Uh, and this week we actually have two priests. I'm one of them, Carl Stevens. And Daniel, you are the rabbi. I am the rabbi today. <laughs> today. No, I do. I think we should switch roles sometime. I, you know. Uh, that would be interesting. Uh, I would have to be a lot wiser and smarter. Um, and fortunately, we're joined by another priest who is both wiser and smarter than me, my friend, and uh, often my mentor, Jane Gertson. Hey, Jane. Hi, Carl. Hi, Daniel. It's great to be here. I'm excited. We tried to do this a while ago, and I'm glad we finally made it work. Yeah, absolutely. And today we are finally at chapter 20. So Moses and the chosen people have reached Mount Sinai, and Moses is going up the mountain, and there God will give Moses the Ten Commandments. Um, so this is Roy Moore's favorite chapter of the Bible. <laughs> are we dedicating this episode of Lost in the Wilderness to Roy Moore? No, I, I, I really don't think we are. <laughs> but, uh, okay. In fact, maybe maybe we will specifically say not dedicated to Roy Moore. Not not <laughs> dedicated to Roy Moore. Okay. Um, uh, the Ten Commandments. And Jane, since you haven't joined us before, what we're going to do is we're just going to read right through, but we're going to interrupt each other a lot. And Daniel, in particular, is going to interrupt us. Uh, to point Excuse us. me, I was trying to say something there. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> there we go. Okay, that's how it will work. Yeah, just practicing. So, Jane, I'm wondering if you want to start reading for us, if you want to just start at verse 1 and, and go until you are rudely interrupted. Sounds like a plan. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord. Okay, let's interrupt. Okay, great. <laughs> Actually, right at the very beginning of this verse, and God spoke. I think this is one of those things that's lost, uh, quite literally lost in translation. But we've got a different name for God than we have been used to encountering. Mm. Uh, that most often, uh, particularly in the Exodus story so far, when we've had a name for God, um, it's this proper name, right? The name that's revealed to Moses at the burning bush, yud heh vav uh, And instead, we get the word Elohim here, which is sort of the the job title as opposed to the proper name. Right. So uh, that has significance um, because according to Rashi here, the word always means a judge because there are some sections in the Torah that contain commandments that if a person performs them, he receives a reward, but if not, he does not receive any punishment for them. I might think that so it is with the Ten Commandments. Therefore, Scripture says, God spoke, signifying God's role as a judge, whose function is to mete out punishment when the Ten Commandments are not obeyed. Um, and actually, every time we get the other name for God, yod Vave, we're told that it is God's aspect of mercy. Uh, in fact, there's a great midrash that says that God prays, and God's prayer is always that God's aspect of mercy override God's aspect of judgment. God's own prayer is that... That is God's own prayer. That God will be more merciful than judgeful. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just because, um, you know, the whole Larry Nassar case and this judge, mm. the judge Aquilina, I think that's how you say her name. I'm not exactly sure, but, um, you know, I don't really like this aspect of God as judge. I think I tend to want to shy away from thinking of God that way. I too rather totally. God be merciful than judging, 
But something about, I was reading the New York Times story, you know, about her and and the way in which she kind of held space in her courtroom for all of these women to come forward and tell their stories and um, kind of, but was both merciful to them, but also judging of Larry Nassar. And there's something about that. I'm like, if God looks like a judge, I think she looks like that. Um and and the way in which she sort of said, leave your pain here and, um, you know, go out. And then when he complained that it was too hard for him, she said, this isn't hard for you. You have done all these things. Um, so I don't know if that connects, but I just have, I was really struck hearing that story in the news lately and thinking maybe there is a space where God is a judge. And this is sort of what it looks like, this, you know, kind of almost truth and reconciliation space of you know, making people experience the pain that they've had other people experience. Right. Although I don't think truth and reconciliation ended uh, automatically with prison time or whatever, right? Like there was more room for grace in that process, wasn't there? There was, but some of the people did end up going to jail. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so we have God maybe as the justice of judges Mm. ever the most just judge uh okay should we continue now that we've gotten a half verse so jane i love your i love your idea here too that it's uh god is the most merciful judge too right i mean i think that's sort of what was that's what i was hearing in that midrash and the the idea that god prays for mercy as much as for the ability to judge when the time is needed All right. You want me to keep reading, Carl? Yeah, that'd be great. Keep going. Okay. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself. No. So hold on. We've, we've entered into actually the 10 commandments now. Yes, this is it. Uh, Though we can't really number them very well, right? Do we, I'm assuming our traditions do not agree on how we number these. I've always understood, I am Lord your God, you must have no other gods before me as the first one. And then the second one is do not make an idol. But are, do you all consider them together? So what I know, and I'm going to do some Googling here while we're talking, but I, and we can have a sheet maybe that we'll throw up on the website if anyone wants to look at it. But uh Different traditions have very different ways of counting the Ten Commandments. And part of that is that it's problematic, right? We get this introduction saying God spoke all of these words, these ten utterances. There's literally the the Hebrew of Ten Commandments. Uh, But there's no division. There's no numbering here. And it's not always so clear. Right. Right, because they're both being explained and spoken. Like, which is the commandment and which is the explanation of the commandment? Exactly. Exactly. So regardless, we've got this commandment at the beginning. You shall have no other gods besides me. Right. Uh, There are other gods in this universe? (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Other people have other gods, not us. Other people have other gods. And that's actually the rabbinic apologetic, that that's how we read this, that other gods are other people's fake gods is the idea. Mm. Um, but, right, the Hebrew seems pretty clear, Elohim acherim, that there are other gods. I've got to be your main squeeze. Mm-hmm. Well, and not only here, but throughout 
scripture, we have other members of a heavenly court, for instance. We have other divine beings. Yeah. So um, so it seems like this idea stays for a very long time. You know, not that there's just one kind of giant divine being that encompasses all things, but the divinity can in some way be split up to be more manageable to our human minds. And that was not at all what I thought when I heard other gods, because I think I tend to think of things that we make into gods um, that may not actually be divine beings. So whether it's, you know, money or things that we covet to possess or whatever, that those become the things that we worship, power, whatever. So I wonder if like, yeah, I don't know. But does it, does the text here in the Hebrew point to these are divine, other divine beings? So the Hebrew is just, you shall have no other gods besides me. Lo lecha, there shall not be to you Elohim acherim alpanai. That's actually an interesting ending here. Uh, you shall not have other gods upon my face, meaning don't bring them around me. Huh. You should not have other gods upon uh, my face. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, no, right? There's an interesting kind of like as long as I don't have to see it kind of thing going on here. Um, yeah, huh. yeah. Huh. What What about this verse before it though? It's an interesting set piece that I, I'm not sure I really thought about. That how is it that the Ten Commandments are introduced, right? I am Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Why is it that you're supposed to keep these things? We get an introduction. Because I brought you out of Egypt. Right. Right. What do we make of that? The thing that strikes me is that God is one who is kind of in our midst. And I mean, we talk about that as incarnation, but the sense that God is among us. And so I guess I have the sense that it grounds God's action and God's commandments in this case in, in our own time, in our own context. Like it is, it is here for this specific moment for these specific people um, out of which these commandments arose. Um, so there's almost a specificity to it that, that strikes me in reading it. So what do we do with that today when we're not those people? Yeah. That, as I was even saying that, that's what it was making me think. Yeah. Well, so how are we known? I mean, this is kind of the, the giant question about who we are, what human beings are, right? Are we, are we who we are because we are just, uh, uh, essentially ourselves, you know, that we were created essentially to be, you know, Daniel or Carl or Jane at, at the beginning of our existence, or do we become who we are by how we're known by other people and how we interpret that, that being knownness, and respond to it. Mm. And maybe this is, you know, the writers of the Torah are seeing God somewhat in the same way. Like how, how is God known? Um, if human beings are so mysterious that we can't really know who we are without the reflection of other people, doesn't it make sense that God would be even more mysterious and kind of require action and history to be known by us at all? <laughs> Yeah. That it's a statement of relationship. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and a defining relationship in in uh, to the fullness of of that phrase, right? So throughout the story, we've seen 
God in part being defined uh, because of this relationship with the Hebrew people and the Hebrew people being defined in relationship with God. Um, I don't know. Like I, I, I want to resist an idea of God as somehow separate, removed from and different to creation um, because I just don't think it's here. I think what we have is God who is very, very, very uh, swept up in creation, involved with creation and willing to change when that creation requires a new relationship with the divine. That's beautiful. I, th- I wonder if there's also something in there about like that, that part of that relationship is about shared experience. Yeah. And I think about like the question you asked me, Daniel, and I wonder if the shared experience here was, was having gone through this experience of coming out of Egypt and, and all that has come before and all that's still yet to come. And that somehow we participate in that through the ways in which we gather for remembrance, for worship, for retelling of the story that we enter into that shared experience. And I think even this act of reading Exodus together as a diocese over the last few months somehow shapes our identity because we've had this shared experience of going through this together. Hmm. I love love that too. Yeah. Uh, And perhaps with that, we'll uh, enter into verse four. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters underneath under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord, your God am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I'm loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay. What are we going to make of this? This is pretty awful, right? I don't know. I mean, I think I could get like really metaphysical about it and sort of say, like, if you think, you know, a lot of the research is showing that like we carry trauma in us generation to generation. And so maybe there is some of that that we, we certainly carry within us, the DNA and the stories, the experiences of those who've gone before us. Um, but whether or not that's our fault, that seems another question, right? Like we didn't, we didn't, we didn't ask for that. We didn't, you know, do something to cause that. I, I heard a reading of this, uh, by a, a mystical teacher of mine in, uh, Jerusalem, Malila Eshad. Uh, and she reads it not as a commandment, but as a statement of reality. Mm. And in that sense, actually a merciful statement of reality, uh, sort of what you were saying, Jane, right? Like when we think of terrible trauma, we know that it doesn't just impact the generation that it happens in, right? We, there are specific psychological illnesses that are found in the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Exactly. Um, right. We, we know that there are, uh, impacts on the the children of people who suffered abuse as children, even if their own children aren't abused mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how their parented, how they're raised and how they look at the world. Uh, and so the kindness becomes right. Okay. If we're going to state the reality that oftentimes bad goes to your 
grandchildren and your great grandchildren's generation, that your sins do have an impact on them, whether we like it or not, the kindness becomes that our goodness reverberates for thousands of generations. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, it occurs to me sitting here thinking about it, that a lot of Christian theology though, has been essentially based around this idea and not just the son of the father, but the fall of Adam, right? Mm-hmm. Like this idea that all of humanity and really all of creation is doomed to live in sin uh, because Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Um, so we do kind of have this genetically at our root, um, well, genetically at the root of our theology, right? This idea um, that we are all part of this system, this intense system uh that is fallen and has swept us up in its fallenness and that we by our own merits cannot escape. Mm. So I guess if we were to condemn this first, we would have to condemn like a lot of theology along with it. Right. Well, and a lot of religious thinking in all traditions, right? I mean, there's some of that that probably exists in every human tradition where we want to, to be able to place blame in that kind of way. Um, and say that God only loves us or accepts us if we do the right thing. Like there's a sort of, if this, then that kind of conditional love that has been, you know, taught through the centuries. Um, yeah. And it's one answer to the problem of evil and it probably gets taught because it's actually a fairly convincing answer to the problem of evil, you know? (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> you deserved uh, yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You deserved it or um, you were born into evil. You know, it, it makes evil not so much a choice perhaps as uh, a condition. Right. Although there's a weird like something in that also makes us not culpable for our own actions. And I like your interpretation or your professor's interpretation of this, Daniel, where it says like, actually, just be aware that you're, you have this impact. And the impact is not just on you and your own current life, but on the future. And yeah, in the same way, your goodness has that kind of lasting impact through through the generations, through the centuries. Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, that's the statement of faith part of it, right? Like, wh- whatever we mean by that idea of faith, that the belief that the good that we do can reverberate and make a meaningful and lasting impact in this world, you got to have faith for that, I think. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Shall we continue? Sure. What, what verse were we on? I think it's verse seven. Think, that sounds right to me. Reading, Jane, or should I take it? You can take it up. I'll do it again later if you want me to. Uh, okay. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not acquit whosoever takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to hollow it. Six days you shall work, and you shall do your tasks. But the seventh day... Is a day, or sorry, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall do no task. You and your son and your daughter, your male slave and your slave girl and your beast and your sojourner who is within your gates. For six days did the Lord make the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it and rested on the seventh day. Therefore did the Lord bless the Sabbath day and hollow it. You know, a ton of Judaism is about Sabbath, about Shabbat. But what is what is the relevance of this in contemporary Christianity? Uh, 
That's a condemning question. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> It wasn't meant in that way, but yeah, okay. Uh, I don't think it has any relevance at all. We are terrible at Sabbath. What do you What do you think, Jay? Terrible. No, I think we're completely terrible. Um, and I think even the day that has been set aside as Sabbath, we don't. I, I don't know. There's something about it that the way in which we do church even doesn't feel to me, often like Sabbath, it feels like work. And it's funny because we often even talk about liturgy as the work of the people. Um, yeah, it's work. Well, you know, I, the excuse, though, is it's not the Sabbath. Yeah. Right. There's that, right? But even so, so it's not as though people do Sabbath on some other day. Yeah. So if I can jump in jump in here with a linguistic piece, uh, James, you were talking about the work of the uh, – did you call it the – the work of the people. So actually the, the word for sacrifice in Hebrew that then becomes the word for prayer in Hebrew uh, is at its core uh, labor, avodah. In fact, it's the, the name of the contemporary labor party in Israel, same word. Um, but that's not the word or the understanding that is used with Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, it, It's a different word of work. Uh, it's not labor, at least in Hebrew, it's creative work. Oh, interesting. Uh, and that becomes the distinction that it's not that on the Sabbath, we are supposed to not labor. In fact, you can do things that are a real pain in the tuchus. Um, but that you're not supposed to do anything that creates or changes the world. Six days, God engaged in acts of creation on the seventh day, God rests from creation. And likewise, that becomes our idea. Of course, Daniel, there is uh, a lot of room for interpretation of what that means. Because you were telling me that like even even ripping a piece of toilet paper off the roll could be considered creative work on the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you go into the Orthodox world and literally the idea is that you, you not change anything, that you have zero impact on your world and your environment for 25 hours, that for 25 hours, you are just a part of creation. Uh, I actually think it's very powerful. I find it really hard to do every week. Uh, I aspire towards it, but I think it's really, I find when I do do it, it impacts the rest of my week. Well, and I like the thought you, you also mentioned a few podcasts back that it's hyper local and hyper community, community focused. Um, and I think both of those things are beautiful, like, because the Sabbath isn't necessarily leisure or relaxation, right? I mean, um, we were talking about this, I was talking about this at the Deacon School, and we were asking each other, what do you do for Sabbath? And then we were like, well, does playing video games, does that count? Is that, you know, like, if it's not focused on God and community, is it Sabbath? Um so uh, in the most sort of traditional setting, what Sabbath looks like uh, is on Friday evening, uh, 18 minutes before the sun sets, the family gathers, candles are lit, prayers are said, all the kids who are there are given a blessing. Uh, then you have a big family meal and usually invite all sorts of other people. There's usually singing at the table. Um, people go to sleep, uh, wake up, go to shul come home, have another big, big meal. Uh, 
and it's traditional then again to sort of have some wine, have some singing, uh, have some friends, uh, take a nap. That's always important on Shabbos. Uh, married couples are actually encouraged to engage in marital relations on the Sabbath. Uh, and uh, uh, I guess the only creative activity yeah, that you're allowed to do is perhaps the ultimate. That's what I was to say. That's creative. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I think of singing as and, creative too. I mean, you're creating like beauty and, you know, obviously you're not actually cooking the, the meals traditionally are prepared beforehand, but, um, I don't know. Even the act of gathering people to me seems like a creative act. I was wondering like making so art. It's creative art in the sense something? of change. Are you changing the physical world? So yeah, so exactly. Art is traditionally prohibited. Right. Um, or permanent art. So you, you know, could some make people a mandala, like, sand mandala, and push it together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. That, that it's a day where we don't change the physical world around us. Okay. I, but I guess uh, just to be argumentative, and maybe it's not helpful. Go I think that that's interesting, but I think every, if we're saying that every act of gathering community is an experience in which we are different on the other end of it then the very act of gathering together with people and praying and singing and eating together, to me that seems like almost like making a child the ultimate creative act. You're creating community. Mm. Creating community. I love that. I love that. Um, I'm going to chew on that. (laughs) Yeah, there's this whole creative aspect of it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's well, you're withdrawing from certain types of creation in order, order to, to create something else. In order to yeah, do a different kind of act of creation. Huh. Huh. Which maybe is, okay. is okay. more the kind of creation that God does or did or is about continually. Hmm. <laughs> Love that. Love that. All right. Okay, shall we continue? Okay, so continuing on verse 12, honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long on the soil that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You sh- So hold yeah. on here for a moment, because um, I'm sure you all get this question too. This is one of the most common questions I get from people. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a really big deal practice in Judaism that on the anniversary of the death of a loved one, you come to the synagogue and you say a special prayer for them. Uh, and at least four or five, six times a year, I have someone come and tell me that they feel so guilty. They can't do it. Their parent was abusive or their parents, they had a deeply complicated relationship with their parents or whatever that looks like. So I guess my, my question for you all is what do you tell people when they ask you that? Right. What does it mean to honor a mother and a father who didn't honor you? Mm. Well, first, we don't have a custom like that, though now I kind of wish we did. Because um, it sounds beautiful. And, and um, we don't, I don't get that question much. Do you get that question, Jane? I mean, I've gotten it a couple of times, but I, I wouldn't say I get it a lot. Um, you know, I, I definitely have heard from someone who said my parents were abusive. And, you know, I think that's where just we say that that's grace, right? That we say, yeah, that if you can't honor them, 
you honor the people who were like mothers and fathers to you. You honor the, you know, the spirit of what they should have been. And in doing that, there is a sort of needing to psychologically distance yourself from someone. I think that that may be in your best interest. So I don't know. I tend to not be like letter of the law about it. So I probably am not giving the right answer. I don't know. No, no, I love that. I'm going to, in fact, steal that the next time I get asked. I really like that. Honor the people who were like mothers and fathers. For Mother's Day and Father's Day, like, I actually think about that more than that because in the church we want to do some, like, weird thing, like give people flowers or something on Mother's Day. And then, you know, the question that comes up theologically is, well, what about all the people who couldn't have children? Or what about, you know, Mm -hmm. people who've lost a child or, you know, whatever, who have had abusive relationships with their parents? Um and so I tend to say something like that on Mother's Day. Like I, I tend to not preach on it, but if there's some sort of celebration during the announcements, I just say, you know, today we honor mothers and all of those who've been mothers to us and sisters and the women in our lives who've been friends and even the men who've been like mothers to us or something like that and doing the reverse on Father's Day. Um mm. So, you know, because I think that's the thing, you know, I've had challenging relationships with my mom over the years. And but I think about all the women who who stepped in and who guided me and took me prom dress shopping or something when my mom didn't. And so, you know, I think there are moments where you think, oh, there are a lot of people who've acted in those roles in our lives, whether they were our biological parents or not. Part of me is sitting here wondering what the term honor really means because do you honor somebody by not calling them to account? Um, I mean, if, if Mm -hmm. honor meant like a deep involvement in somebody's life in such a way that sometimes you did have to call them to account, then you could imagine doing that, uh, kind of with anybody. You could say, Look, the fact that I'm not talking to my abusive father is a way of honoring him because I have decided not to be the person he abuses, which helps his humanity <laughs> um, because he is now he has no outlet for his abuse. Right. Uh, maybe that's too. I don't know. Maybe that's too Talmudic or something. Um, but just that question of do, do we honor each other by allowing each other to get away with stuff? Or do we honor each other more by kind of refusing relationship when the relationship is broken and the other person has no intention of changing in such a way that would fix it? Yeah. You know, the the word honor itself in Hebrew means uh, its core meaning Uh is heaviness. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Mm. So, So treat this relationship... With weight, don't treat this relationship lightly. That I, I mean, to me, that makes more sense. Frankly, you know, like like the Jesus's most famous parable, the prodigal son. What does the son do at the beginning? He treats his relationship with his father lightly, as if it has no weight. Um, that's the basic dishonoring that happens. Uh, yeah, I was also huh. thinking about the, you know, the marriage ceremony where it says at the very beginning, you know, do not enter into this irreverently or, you yeah. know, kind of lightly, but enter into it with that kind of as you're describing it like weight. Like this is this is of the vows that you are about to take are 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 worthy of something. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, this is good. Mm. All right. <laughs> the, the, that'll preach. <laughs> Uh, the next one's do not kill. 
Do we want to interrupt there or not? <laughs> uh, I think we do because you've got that cool midrash, Daniel, about um, about the the actual graphic layout of the commandments themselves on the two tablets. The graphic layouts, yeah, I love this one. Um, how were the Ten Commandments given? Five on one tablet and five on the second tablet is the answer. We sort of take it for granted. Isn't that how we all imagine it now? Charleston Heston's hands. Yeah, Yeah, it looks in the movie that way, so of course. Well, those are the same Uh, thing, I think, right? Clearly. However it was with Charlton Heston, Uh it was at Sinai. Clearly. Um, uh, But it's not so clear, right? We don't know that there's five on one and five on the other. In fact, uh, I remember a a professor in rabbinical school saying uh, that according to ancient contract notions, uh, it probably was two copies of the contract rather than two separate Mm. uh, uh, documents here. But regardless, the Midrash says five on one tablet and five on the second tablet. This means that do not murder corresponds to I am the Lord your God. The Torah is telling us that if one sheds blood, it is as if he has reduced the image of the divine. What is this analogous to? to a king of flesh and blood who entered a country and put up portraits of himself, made statues of himself, and minted coins with his image. After a while, the people of the country overturned his portraits, broke his statues, and invalidated his coins. All I can think is Saddam Hussein here, by the way. Um, Thereby reducing the image of the king. So too, one who sheds blood reduces the image of the king. As it is written in Genesis, one who spills a person's blood uh, for in the image of God... Uh, this person was made, right? Um, the idea here, and I, we were talking before we began recording, but I, I think this is maybe the most significant ethical idea that the Jewish people have offered, uh, that every human being has infinite worth because every human being ultimately is an image of the divine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talking about happiness. So in some way, it occurs to me that it's good that this follows the commandment about father and mother because it's saying basically treat everything as if it had the same heaviness. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. You know, this isn't the way that the world has been for most of creation, and it's not the way that the world is in most of the world today. I mean, right, it, it, it is still not a given that every human life has value. Yeah. Uh, even in our own country. I mean, like, I think that that is what's so heartbreaking is that we, we don't even really believe this. Um, we say we do, but then we don't actually treat people that way. Certain people are more likely to go to prison or more likely to be killed by the police or, um, yeah. And certainly in other places where slavery continue, you know, is a sort of standard practice or, um, yeah, where one, group is is in power and thinks that killing another group is their right i, I blame adam <laughs> <laughs> you know I, humanity. We'll i'm just look back on that. sins of the father right i mean really hmm. <laughs> i'm thinking about all these religious leaders and it's making me a little depressed here who would find it much more problematic to desecrate an image of the divine than they would the routine desecration of human beings that we see uh, on our streets and in our lives and in the newspaper. Or even the and, death penalty. 
Even the death penalty. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's many yeah. people who say that this is, this is right. This is the justice that, that God demands. Um, well, uh, again, last week I kept saying, just wait till chapter 32. And I'm, I'm saying it again, really, because uh, that will complicate all these very nice notions we have, right? I mean, uh, there are people get killed for having worshipped a golden calf and, and had a, a little bit of an orgy, you know, uh, which is hardly a capital offense here today. So... I, sometimes I wonder if, like, the scripture itself lives up to this high moral ideal. In fact, I don't wonder it. I know it doesn't. <laughs> I like it. So, um, so let's just hold that tension while we while we go a little bit further. So, Jane, you were uh, you were going. Do you want to keep going? Okay. Yeah. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. By the way, this is just like, you know, we, we, the first five commandments or so, we get lots and lots of detail here. And now it's just, you know, we're, we're done. We're, we're trying to finish the story quickly, it seems. Right, exactly. Like, you guys know not to do this. Uh, do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So hold on, Jane. I love what you just said. You said it is an aside, but uh, that it's like, okay, you all know not to do this, but these are the commandments that seem the most utilitarian, right? These are the ones that almost every society has. Uh, and then we get to coveting. And we get a lot more detail there. So are you saying not every society had a don't covet commandment? No, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, okay, we can all derive a pretty quick morality of don't murder, don't have sexual immorality, don't steal things, don't uh, lie in a court about your uh, fellows around you. But how easy is it for us to justify our coveting of others and other people's lives and their stuff and for that justification to ultimately be um, a moral gray zone? Or seen as a positive uh, good. <laughs> what What is the advertising industry but a, but a giant refutation of this commandment, right? This desire to have us covet everything right. all the time. It feels like all of like modern contemporary capitalist society is based on us not living into this. Like, yeah. you know, that essentially the only way that the economy will work is if we want something we don't have. Yeah. 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 Right. The idea is growth. That's the whole notion, which depends on that. Precisely. Um, when, the state of Israel is being formed, and it's worth remembering that in the uh, 30s and 40s, uh, 1930s and 40s, it was a much more ideologically uh, uh, driven moment in humanity. But the, the chief rabbi of Israel, Rav Cook, was asked, what should the economic policy of the new state be? And his answer was that the Torah doesn't lay out uh, one particular way of managing an economy other than laissez-faire capitalism is absolutely anathema to the Torah. Mm -hmm. 
That was the one concept that he sort of saw, and he, he derived it from here. I mean, it's yeah. true. <laughs> it's hard to argue with that. But again, it's hard to also participate in a global economy without having that be sort of your fundamental value. Yeah, do we have – in that sense, our religious traditions become deeply countercultural. Totally. Okay, so verse 18 going on. And all the people were seeing the thunder and the flashes and the sound of the ram's horn and the mountain and smoke. And the people saw and they drew back and stood at a distance. And they said, For those listening at home, uh, Carl said 18, he meant 15. I did? It that is verse 18. 18. That's verse 18 for you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. We've encountered <laughs> one of those spots where the uh, uh, numbering is different in the Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition. Very interesting. Okay. So. So, so all of those before, do not kill, do not commit adultery, those are all one verse. That's all verse 13 for me. Wow. Okay. Wow. So each of those is a separate Got verse it. for us. Huh. Got it. Um, okay. So I'm still, I'm still on verse 13 slash 18 or 15 slash 18 or whatever the case may be. Okay. Keep going. Uh, the people saw and they drew back and stood at a distance and they said to Moses, speak with you uh, Speak you with us that we may hear and let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for in order to test you, God has come and in order that God's fear be upon you so that you do not offend. And the people stood at a distance and Moses drew near the thick cloud where God was. Okay. So we've, we've left the 10 commandments and now we are into the description of the experience of the people receiving it. Is that right? I, I believe so. And we've also come full circle. So we're back to God as judge. Let me see. Do not Michelle. Yeah, Elohim. Okay. So God is still judge and we are told specifically to fear God. And we are told what that fear is supposed to do for us, which is to keep us from offending. And so like my translation says stood at a distance don't let God speak to us or right. we'll die. So there's this sense of like we're, we're called to stand at a distance from God in this passage. Right, right. That God is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, think about how much of this depends on your belief that God is dangerous, right? I mean, there's a setup, obey all these commandments or else. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, my, Maimonides, who, Carl, you and I have talked about uh quite a bit, this Jewish philosopher whose um, school I'm very much a part of who lived about a thousand years ago. He says this whole idea of reward and punishment uh, does not exist in divine reality. It is entirely pedagogical, that the whole point of it is that it works to build a society if people believe this, not that it's actually true, that this is a uh, effectively a useful lie on God's part. Huh. Wow, you just, you just blew my mind, man. I was going to say, like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm going to need to, like, meditate on that for a while. Well, that comes pretty – well, it's it's like the flip side of the idea that God is a useful lie for the control of society. Yeah. In fact, in some ways, it's the same idea. Uh, well, right, except who's, who's – who's the actor in in Mamadi's version it's God who's the actor in uh in the other version it's us who are the actor creating a god so that we can somehow control ourselves and each either other either way 
we're dealing with an apologetic for the fact that our world doesn't seem to reflect the world that the Torah aspires towards. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It does. One of those sort of philosophical questions though, then for me under this is in a increasingly kind of post-religious society, is it possible to cultivate a society based on the religious or based on the common good without this kind of religious overtone threat situation that has been the basis of much of society, not just in Judaism and Christianity, but in other traditions as well. Hmm. Hmm. And what's your answer? I don't know. I mean, I think that people, I mean, the people I know who would say, I don't believe in God, but I, you know, believe in much of this. Don't kill people, you know, don't steal things, work to, you know, help other people in this world. I'd say in some ways, I think they act more faithfully than, than many of the people I know who are very religious, but on the other hand, this has been the basis throughout history. So it's like, it's almost like this like massive experiment we're undertaking um, in our own time to say, can we cultivate a just society without uh, an understanding of a God who might punish hmm. us if we don't? I, I'm a student of uh, Rabbi Daniil Hartman, who just wrote a book, uh, Putting God Second. And that's sort of the idea. Uh, that's sort of the mm -hmm. idea though. He sees it as a deeply Jewish commandment, but, uh, what I was really thinking, I just was on a guest on a podcast, humanize me, uh, is the name of the podcast by Bart, uh, Campolo, uh, who's, Oh yeah. Oh, there you go. Uh, but he's yeah. an ex evangelical and a, a deeply secular humanist today, but that's what he's struggling with is this question of how do you create community and how do you create a common, myth that tells you how you're supposed to live in the world if you've given up your traditional myth. Exactly. Yeah. I love, I once heard him give a talk about like kind of this house of cards. And if you pull one card out of the bottom, you know, what, what happens to the rest of it? And I think it's a really fascinating question. Um, how do you reconstruct, you know, your entire worldview essentially without mm. that core piece? Um, and actually just moved to Cincinnati. And, and that for many people, right. <laughs> and for many people, the, the kind of core view still is infused in so much of our mm. society, you know, as mirrored by these commandments being put in front of courthouses yeah. and stuff. Um, like whether we want to believe it or not, it is still like one of the founding principles upon which, you know, our, our culture and society was built. So I don't know. It seems like we don't we don't yet know the answer to that, although we're living into it in a way that is maybe different than generations before us. Yeah, and I think we have an awareness, and this is what Daniil's book, Putting God Second, is about, that being religious has not made people good. Exactly. And that's right? our core claim, I think, that it's supposed to make us good, but it just, it doesn't. Well, I... I think that the, I'm sitting here listening and struggling with the idea that uh, our relationship with God ha should have anything to do with the construction of society. And in part, I think 
it's because the religious people who I most admire are those who actually fled society, you know, so the desert fathers and mothers, St. Anthony of the desert, all the kind of weird saints, Christina, the astonishing, you know, uh, John of the cross, Teresa of Avila, like every single one of them in some way said all of this fuss and bother of, of humans trying to live together, uh, really doesn't matter. Like just just think about, you know, just work on your relationship with God. Everything else will follow. So live lives of deep, deep con- contemplation and prayer. And, uh, you know, what the rules are that govern other people will become less and less important. Um, and, and I think it goes to that kind of coveting question. You know, why are we such a covetous society? Well, we've decided that coveting is a really important part of our social construction. But I think... John of the Cross or Teresa or, you know, any of the other great saints, Brother Lawrence, uh, would say, try and practice a kind of non-attachment or Christian non-attachment, which is really the most profound attachment one can can aspire to with God, you know. And once you've attached yourself to God, you can wander barefoot through the snow without caring that much. So, um, and I love that, you know, that I am drawn to those same contemplative people and the stories and the wisdom that, that they garnered in that. But it also strikes me as, I don't know, a certain kind of like privilege in many cases to be able Mm. to absent one totally from society. Well, it's definitely a sacrifice. Um, And maybe not in their own time. But like, and and certainly I've met homeless people who've made those kinds of conscious choices too, right? To say, I don't actually want to own a home. I don't care if you want to give me a house. I don't like, you know, I mean, some of them, it's more about mental illness, but there are certainly a segment of people in this world who have consciously chosen not to participate in a broken economy and a broken society. But I don't know. It, there is a part of me that thinks that like, you know, taking care of one's children and, you know, all of those things requires a certain participation, participation in society. Oh, I agree. Like- and it's not a choice I would make for myself, but we used to honor it and we no longer do. Right. Those uh, yeah. well, I you know, like, like in that. Russia, yeah. even up yeah. until the 19th century, homeless people were seen as saints. Like if they came to your door, you asked them for a blessing. Uh, huh. we don't, we don't do that anymore. So. Right. You know, I. Although Dorothy Day, although Dorothy yeah. Day did, and uh, I think there's still a you know that tradition of a Catholic worker house and, and places where people do continue that work. But I, I would agree with you that it is less a part of our kind of right. societal values. Right. You know, taking the biblical version of this, the um, Nazir uh, Nazarite. Is that how yeah. you say it in English? Uh, and it's interesting that in the Torah itself, the Nazarite seems to be ethically neutral kind of thing. You can do it. You can not do it. It, it, There doesn't seem to be a judgment about it. And the rabbinic tradition turns the Nazir into a sinner Hmm. that someone who withdraws from, uh, not just the needs and the obligations of the world, but actually there's a real focus on also withdraws from the joys of the world. Uh, has mm-hmm. uh, fundamentally committed a sin. Wow. 
Wow. That is, uh, that is, a, I don't know that we have to agree with it, but yeah. Yeah. That's a very huge difference. I would say, <laughs> In uh, a radical reinterpretation by the rabbis, that's certainly not the Torah's understanding of a nazir. Yeah, huh? Right. Well, I was thinking of the nazir thing, but also of the prophets who did, in some ways, you know, act entirely countercultural in all kinds of ways, um, and and that you know action did sometimes involve withdrawal from the standards of society in different but places. Never the withdrawal. From- so yeah, it is the political needs of society. Precisely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do think that's interesting. Well, and I should say, even in the Christian context, it is something of a romanticization to say that these people withdrew entirely, you know, like St. Teresa was writing to the Pope, uh, Anthony of the desert was constantly involved in like the theological with problems of his day, which at that time were actually political problems. So they were always involved. Um, None of us, none of us do this well, basically. (laughs) It's what it comes down to. Um, But a society that still can kind of honor that, I, you know, even, even while admitting that it's flawed and no one does it particularly well, um, I, I would like to live in that society that could honor the ideal. Um, but anyway, we are running way over time. So, uh, Jane, would you take us home? Would you finish the chapter for us? Sure. Um, the Lord said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. You saw for yourselves how I spoke with you from heaven. Don't make alongside me gods of silver or gold for yourselves. Make me an altar from fertile soil on which to sacrifice your entirely burned offerings, your well-being sacrifices, your sheep and your oxen. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I make sure my name is remembered. But if you do make for me an altar from stones, don't build it with chiseled stone, since using your chisel on the stone will make it impure. Don't climb onto my altar using steps, then your genitals won't be exposed by doing so. <laughs> and thus the end of our chapter. <laughs> ending, ending on a truly there deeply spiritual high. Have a great yes. week, everyone. <laughs> and and why, why does that part never get onto the billboards of the Ten Commandments? Why, why does it not have a little addendum that says, oh, and also don't make, don't use steps because of the genitals. Because <laughs> of the genitals. Yeah. This is, you know, actually I remember my very first, uh, Shabbat morning as a student rabbi, I did nothing but sit up on the bima on the altar. And the comment I got afterwards was that I shouldn't cross my legs while I'm sitting up there. Huh. Um, I was wearing pants, but uh, evidently that's what they told uh, everyone. So they were egalitarian. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Okay. So that's the ending here, right? Be careful when doing things to uh, uh, not cross your legs while wearing a skirt. Uh, another ending could be when you are a seminarian, no matter what your, what your faith, you will always be criticized for random and weird things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> True. Well, any, any, I mean, we, we did come up with a series of reasons why, why this might be, but none of them are very satisfying, dear listeners. So none of them are satisfying. We could no. share them with you, but I, I think it's safe to say that there is a kind of 
cosmic scholarly shrug towards this and says, uh, this must have been important at the time, but nobody knows why. So, uh, okay. So we have come to the end of the 10 commandments. Jane, thank you so much for joining the us. End. Oh, it's such a pleasure. It's so fun to talk with you all. I've, I've loved it. Yay. Thanks for having uh, me. So I will now give our famous outro. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness uh, is part of the of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. And I am going to try and remember every week now to give a plug to the final event of the Exodus year, which is the Exodus Colloquium coming up in April, uh, April 9th, I believe, Saturday, April 9th, um, at All Saints Church in New Albany, just north of Columbus. And we will have uh, some of the scholars who have written the books. Uh, sorry, I need to amend that. It's like going to be on April 7th. I'm glad I checked. April 7th. But some of the scholars who have been reading the books will be there. So Terrence Fredheim, Carol Myers uh, will be there. And that's very exciting, I think, for, for those of us who have spent six months reading their words. Okay. Um, Daniel, do you have any plugs you want to make? I... Find me on the Humanize Me podcast oh, from this last week. Cool, great idea. And Jane, do you have any plugs? No, not right now. I think so. Okay, great. Okay, we will talk to you all next week.